I just want to uh, begin tonight um, by sharing a story with you uh, about myself. Um, I am from North Carolina. Anybody from North Carolina in here? No. Okay, thank you. That is, that's making me feel really lonely right now. So um, anyway, but I grew up in a small town called Wilson, North Carolina, um, population 38,000 people. They're known for selling tobacco or growing tobacco. That's not really a good thing to be known for, but that's what they're known for, and they're still selling it to this day. They're kind of like, you know, forget cancer. We're, this is the only product that we can sell, and it's just crazy. But I grew up in the small town, and then when I was a sophomore in high school, I moved to Raleigh, and um, I did something crazy. I moved in the middle of the school year, not at the beginning of the school year, in the middle. That's not a good time to move, by the way, if you're, if you're making, you know, transition. And um, I decided the very first day that I was going to enroll at this new high school, that I was going to go into the cafeteria and sit down in the middle of the cafeteria with my lunch and just uh, surely someone's going to come up to me and introduce themselves, sit with me, and I'm going to make some new friends. And so sure enough, I had this whole plan, got into the middle. I picked the middle, like the very, very middle of the cafeteria. Sat down, started opening up my lunch that my, my dad had packed. He put a couple, a couple extra ho-hos in there for me to share with friends and stuff, which is really, really cool, which ho-hos don't exist anymore because hostess doesn't exist anymore. But they were amazing. And so I'm, I'm going through my lunch, and no one comes and sits with me. The whole entire lunch, I'm just sitting there by myself eating my lunch and my ho-hos and three empty chairs with me in the middle of the cafeteria. So a couple, a couple days goes by, a couple weeks goes by, and I'm still living in the town, Wilson, and I'm commuting to Raleigh. It's about an hour and 15-minute commute in traffic. It's usually about 45 minutes, but I'm commuting to Raleigh, and the problem is I have to carry all my books home because I'm not using my locker yet because I just wanted to make sure in case I forgot something, I just had it with me because I couldn't drive back to school and get it that easily. So, so I'm commuting back and forth, and I'm walking to school. It's 7.30 in the morning. We started school at 7.45 which I don't know when you started, but that was really, really early, I felt like. And I had to drive an hour and 15 minutes, mind you, okay? So I'm crossing the street because I don't have a parking pass for the parking lot. I'm parking way away. I'm crossing the street, and I stub my toe on St. Mary's Road, okay? And I just stub it. But because I have my whole locker on my back, I get tackled by my books, and it takes me down in the middle of St. Mary's Road. And like, I am like sprawled out on the street. And all I can remember is like books come over the shoulder. I'm down on my hands and knees. I don't know what's going on. And I look up and Eileen Gates, she was a junior at the time. <laughs> she didn't know me, but I knew her. And she turned around and looked at me and she gave me the look like, oh, it's the new kid. And I mean, I was so embarrassed. I mean, I was so full of shame. And I'm telling you, I was so mortified by the moment that I stayed away from the cafeteria. I didn't want people to, I didn't want to know people. I didn't want people to know me. I just kind of stayed away for a while. I was like, people got to forget that I was the guy who tripped and fell on the way to class, that I was the guy that sat in the cafeteria by myself. And it was totally awkward for me because I had friends I wanted to tell these people, look, I do have friends. I know it doesn't look like I have friends, but I, I really do have friends. And the crazy thing was, I, had, um, I was 16, and I had just gotten my license um, at the beginning of the school year. So I had my license before everyone else in my sophomore class, for the most part. And I, my dad was so generous to me. This is amazing. My dad is the, a generous, generous man. He gave me a car on my 16th birthday, gave it to me. 
Didn't make me pay for it. And I was so proud of this car. It was a 1979 Pontiac Grand Le Mans. Okay, we're going to show you a picture of this car right here. Okay, these are not, this is not me with my wishful thinking friends. This is just the car, okay? And I know I'm dating myself right now. This is 1990 I'm talking about when this move took place. So I got this car in 1989. It's 10 years old. But I'm telling you, I love this car. It was so cool. My dad, Jenner's dad, he put a stereo in there, a Kenwood stereo with a tape deck. Do y'all know what a tape deck is? Like, I had a tape deck, okay? It was amazing. It, it was awesome. So not only did I have a really cool car, but I had a tape deck in it, okay? And then on the back of it, I had this. I had this sticker because I was a redneck from Wilson. But here's the, here, here it is. Oakley thermonuclear protection, okay? And that was on the back of it because I, I could do that in Wilson. That was like cool in Wilson. Like I could do that and be a redneck and people, I could, you know, listen to my stereo and people thought that was totally fine. But I moved to Raleigh and that didn't fit in in Raleigh. I moved to a school that was like, there was high class, upper class, and there was lower class. There was no middle class at the school. I went to public school. But there was a very tiny, little, thin middle class, and there was like tons of upper class and tons of low class. And like I, told, I, did, I did not feel cool. I did not feel like I had the right clothes. It was clear I didn't have any friends. And, and, you know, and I felt so unworthy and so inferior in the moment. And I don't know about you, if you've ever had an experience like that, if you've felt that before in your life or... You know, I don't know if you're here for the very first time tonight and you come here and you see people talking to one another and you don't feel like you like fit in here. And that would be horrible if that's the way you felt. But maybe you feel that or, or maybe you're here tonight and you feel like, man, if people really knew what I was dealing with or if people knew my thoughts or the addictions in my life or what was going on, they would not be sitting beside me right now. They wouldn't even let me in this building if they knew what was going on. Maybe that's something that you feel. And tonight, we're going to be continuing in this series. But, but one of the things I want you to get to tonight, and I hope you can take away from tonight, is that what you believe about God and what he thinks about you is so important for you to understand. Because he has done something for each of us here that is absolutely amazing. And tonight, as we continue this series, we're going to be looking at the greatest, I think it's the greatest scandal in the New Testament, for sure. And it's the story of Paul, or Saul, we know him as. And so we're going to dive into this. And I just need to tell you, there's a lot of information coming. I know you're at the end of the semester, and I couldn't be more grateful that you're here tonight, and you're like the faithful core, you know. And if, if God, like, measured anything, that you might get credit for that. But he doesn't measure things like that. But I just want to tell you personally, I'm really, really glad you're here, okay? And I need you to engage because we have a lot going on. And for me to tell you the story of Paul, you got to have your mind fully engaged. So here's the deal. It's, the story of Paul begins with this guy named Stephen, okay? And we're not going to look at it in the scripture because it would be too much scripture for us to cover. But it's Acts 6, 7, 8, and 9 if you wanted to get the whole story, okay? But here's the story behind Stephen. Stephen um, was this man who got selected to be among seven men 
to take care of the distribution of food to the widows, okay? And what was happening among the disciples in, in the church that day is they were having problems getting widows fed, and they were all trying to, like, study the word and preach the word, but all of a sudden they were being bothered about making sure that the food was distributed. So they had a meeting together, and they said, hey, hey men, let's get all together. Let's figure this out among all of our leadership here. Who, are the, who should take care of this? And they appointed seven men to take care of this. And one of the seven men uh, that was going to take care of this was a guy named Stephen. And that's all we know, that he was selected as one of the seven. And then all of a sudden, he, he um, begins, the next thing we see about Stephen is that he's doing miracles. He's performing signs and wonders. And it says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's preaching like in Jerusalem. And he starts getting into these debates with these Jews. And these Jews are trying to take Stephen down. But Stephen is not only is he full of the Holy Spirit, which is, is pretty sufficient, but he knows the word of God, the Old Testament, like crazy. And he is putting these Jews to shame. They cannot, they cannot win the debate. And it's awesome. And so what they do, what these Jews do, is they stir up a secret. They, they pull these men aside and they say, listen, if you will accuse him of saying blasphemous things about Moses and the law then we can get him to go to trial in front of the Sanhedrin. So sure enough, they, they concoct this whole deal. And then one of the greatest sermons that ever unfolds in the New Testament happens in this moment because Stephen gets called for, for the Sanhedrin and they bring the charges against him. And all of a sudden, Stephen unloads on this sermon. And it is amazing because he starts at Abraham. He goes all the way back and starts at Abraham. And then he goes all the way through Moses and he goes all the way to the Messiah. And the best part is he gets to the end of this thing and, he, he, and he's in front of the Sanhedrin. You got a picture of this. He's on trial and he says, you stiff-necked people, which that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, he's like full of the Holy Spirit. He's like, you stiff-necked people. And then he says this, this is like low blow, who have uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. If you don't know what that means, don't ask your neighbor right now, okay? <laughs> but he says, you have uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. And they, he's like, you murdered the Messiah. And he just goes after them. He's like, you're the ones who put the Messiah, the chosen one from God, the savior of the world, to death. And the scripture says that they start gnashing their teeth. They're so angry. And I don't know what that is. I'll just be real honest with you. And I don't know what that does. But I mean, I, I'm trying to picture like what's, what's going on there. But they're like. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if Stephen's like, whoa, I'm scared now. You know, like I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, like really, that's what you're going to bring. You're going to bring gnashing. You know, I mean, I don't know what's happening in that moment, but it says that they're so angry that they're gnashing their teeth and that they begin to, to push him out of the room that they're in where this trial is taking place and they get him out in the open and they're just, he is still preaching the sermon while they're like getting rid of him. He's still going because he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's bringing, and they get him outside and they pick up stones and they stone him to death. They kill him on the spot. And then all of a sudden, Acts records this one little sentence. And it says at the end of his death that Saul was there giving his approval, saying, great job. Well done, guys. Way to put Stephen to death. And that's where we're introduced to this guy named Saul. His, uh, his 
Jewish name was Saul. His Greek and Gentile name was, was Paul. So just in case you're wondering if I start saying Paul in a second, that's what's going on. And uh, so here's what happens. So because of the persecution and the, and the martyrdom of Stephen, the disciples and the people that were following Jesus, everybody, like there was a larger group of people that followed Jesus at this point in time in the church, they started spreading everywhere. The scripture says that they go to Judea and Samaria. They're on the run now because they know persecution is coming. And then the scripture records that there's some godly men, which is a pretty cool title. Some godly men put buried Stephen. And then the, a few verses later, it says, but Paul began to destroy the church. Saul began to destroy the church. And the way that he did that was he began to go to house to house and just put, started putting people into prison. Then some other things happen in the rest of the chapter that have nothing to do with Saul. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter 9 of Acts, it says, it picks up the story back up. And it says, meanwhile, Saul went to the, the high priest and he asked for letters to put people in jail who were followers of the way in Damascus. So he goes on this journey to Damascus. And on his way there, he is blinded by a light and he hears this voice. And then when he gets blinded by the light, he falls to the ground and, and he hears this voice. And this voice says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responds like anyone else would respond in that moment. He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice responds back, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Which just a little side note, I think that's amazing, by the way. Because Saul was on this journey to capture people that were followers of the way. That's what they called Christians back then. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You're not persecuting followers of the way. You're persecuting me in that moment. Saul has these men with him. They get up. They take him back to this house. He's blind for three days. And then we're introduced to this other man named Ananias. He's a, a disciple. He's known as a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12, but he's now a follower of Christ. And Jesus comes to Ananias in a vision and says, hey, I need you to go to Judas's house on Straight Street. And I need you to, there's a man named Saul there and he's blind and he's had a dream and he knows that a guy named Ananias is going to come and pray for him and he's going to give him his sight back. And Ananias responds to Jesus and says, listen, I've heard of this guy, Saul of Tarsus. He has done a lot of damage to your people and to, the, to your work. And Jesus like cuts him off in that moment and he says, go. He says, go, because he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my message to the Gentiles. And I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And so, of course, when Jesus tells you to go, that's, you don't have any other options, you know? And so Ananias goes, and he goes and meets Saul in that moment, and he prays for Saul. And all of a sudden, when he prays, some scales fall off Saul's eyes, and then Saul can see again. It says it gets up, he gets some food, because he hadn't had food or drink for three days. He gets up, and then all of a sudden, the scripture records that a few days later, he's like preaching in Damascus, and he's debating and proving to Jews in Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God, which is just fascinating. I mean, that in itself is amazing. And it, it becomes so crazy in Damascus that all of a sudden Jews want to put 
Saul to death, the man who was putting Christians to death, the man who had the letters from the high priest to go arrest a Christian, now his life is at stake, so much so that they have to lower him out of the city in a basket. The walls are, the gates are closed. He can't go through the gates. They're looking for him. They lower him out of the city through a basket, and then he shows back up in Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, I just want you to be tracking with me on this. The first thing he wants to do is go meet with the disciples. Now, can you imagine, just for a moment, you're one of the disciples. Are you letting this guy back? Are you like, hey, I'd love to meet with this guy. Do you believe the story that you're hearing about him? Think about it for a moment. And they're not going to meet with him because they don't know what to believe. But all of a sudden, Bartholomew, one of the disciples, goes, here's a story. I don't know how. It doesn't really say And he brings Saul to the disciples. And I just want you to think for a moment. Okay, if you're the disciple, your friend Stephen has just been martyred by this guy. He didn't do it himself. He didn't pick up a stone maybe. Then maybe possibly you know some people that have been put in jail as well. Maybe they're family members. Maybe they're close friends. But this man has caused you great trouble. And now he's like, I want to be one of you. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. And I want you to think about Paul in this moment. What's he feeling? You think he's feeling accepted by these people? You think he's like, I'm worthy to be one of them because I just had this encounter with Jesus? You think he's not thinking about what he's done? You not think he's carrying guilt of that with him? And it might be too soon to bring this up, but I'm I'm just going to try to get you to experience the emotion of this because of what just happened today in Boston. But can you imagine if we found out who was behind the bombing in the next few days that happened in Boston today? And all of a sudden, they identify themselves and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. That was so, that's a terrible tragedy. I should not have done that. I was wrong. Do you think we're going to be forgiving in our country? Do you think we're going to be like welcoming them into any meeting and be like, oh, well, why don't you tell us about the rest of your terrorist network? You know, like, do you think we're going to be like friendly to them? And I just want you to think about that for a moment. Just think about how the disciples might have viewed Paul. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing what happened. And, and all of a sudden... Saul begins to preach in Jerusalem. Begins to teach. Do the same thing. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what becomes of Paul is absolutely incredible. Because, I mean, he begins to be the mouthpiece to take the message of Jesus Christ to a world that had never heard of him. And what Jesus said about him, that he's my chosen instrument, became true. And we wouldn't have most of the New Testament if it wasn't for Saul and for what God did with his life. And I just want to share with you this passage, this one passage tonight as we wrap up this series in 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 10. It says... 
But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I will refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why. For Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This passage is um, debated, talked about a lot. No one really knows what the thorn in in Paul's flesh was. I'm not going to try to answer that for you tonight. It doesn't really, really matter, to be honest with you, what it was. It was there. It was real. It was a struggle. It was an obstacle. It was something that he pleaded with God and said, would you please take this away? But the answer back from God is the thing that I want you to hear tonight. That's true for every single one of us in here tonight. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And it's that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And if God's scandalous grace. We're going to put this up here. If God's scandalous grace can transform a heart like Paul's. Then whose heart is beyond God's reach? Seriously, that should give us amazing hope today. And I don't know about you. I don't know what's going on in your life. And I don't know what you're bringing in here tonight. But there is nothing in your past. There is nothing in your present. And there will be nothing in your future that Jesus Christ cannot redeem. The power of Jesus Christ cannot transform. And that's the beautiful thing about this whole thing called Christianity. Because of Christianity, because of Jesus Christ, this whole thing is about us being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But for us to get there, for us to get to that place, we have to receive and understand His grace, His scandalous grace that is there for us. And there's some things that are true of us tonight, of people who don't receive if we don't trust in his grace. And first thing is this. What does it look like when we don't trust his grace? We lie about our sin to cover it up. We lie about our sin to cover it up. And, and so we either just don't think it's that big of a deal or we think, hey, it's, you know, I, I can, it's not there. And we try to deny it. And we think that we don't need Christ in our life. Or we don't need Christ to be Lord of our life in that specific area. It's like all these other areas, God, I totally will give to you. 
I'm keeping this one to myself and we don't trust him with it. And so we just kind of act like it's not there. The other thing is when we don't trust in his grace is we attempt to do good stuff to measure up. And so we think, well, I know if I can, and I know most of us know this, but we still do it. It's like, we know that measuring up isn't possible, but it's like, no, but if I do this, if I serve in this way, then maybe he's going to honor my life or maybe he's just going to forget that thing. And we get in that trap and that deception and we try to measure up by doing good stuff. And that's what happened when we live a life that doesn't receive and trust in God's grace for us. And see, I just want you to, again, think about Paul. Do you think he ever felt inferior? Do you think he ever felt like, man, I've got to go preach the gospel to the entire world so that I can make up for my sin or for what I did or for how I wronged these people and these families? He probably felt that way, but he more than anybody knew the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul realized early on in his relationship with Jesus Christ that there was never going to be a way for him to measure up and pay back what he had done. He came to a place where he realized God's grace is sufficient for him. And he began to live a life that was a life by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ and a life lived by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, that the cross and the death of Jesus Christ was sufficient for his sin. He lived by faith because he knew that faith was the only way that he could receive the righteousness of God, that Jesus Christ became our righteousness. And so tonight, as we close the series, I'm just wondering about you tonight. What is it? What is it in your life that, that maybe is holding you back from fully experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ? Because if God can transform a heart like Saul or Paul's, there's not a heart that he can't transform. And as we close tonight, I want us to pray this prayer tonight. And I only want you to pray it if you desire this. But it's this prayer. It says, God, we're going to put it up on the screen. God, will you place in me the belief that your scandalous grace is more than sufficient for me? And will you give me the desire to trust you in all areas of my life? And there's two reasons why I want us to pray this prayer tonight. And the first is this. You will never feel worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ. There's some of you right now, you don't feel like you should even be here. You don't feel like you should be here tonight. And that's okay. It's okay that you don't feel worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ because no one's worthy of it. That's why it's grace. That's the scandal. That's the entire scandal. We deserve death. We deserve wrath. We deserve eternal separation from God. And we got grace. And that's the beautiful thing. And so you'll never feel worthy of it. If you feel worthy of it, you are messed up in the head. No one's worthy. And so it's okay. So whatever sin is there, whatever thing is in your past, whatever thing that you're like, you haven't brought to the light, it's okay because Jesus Christ has paid for it. 
And the second thing, the reason I want you to pray, pray this prayer is God has a plan for those who choose to receive his grace and live by faith. And it's a plan that is beyond your wildest dreams. It would blow your mind tonight if God were here and said, look, if you trust me, this is what I'm going to do with your life. It would freak you out because it is greater than any dream that you have for your life. It is greater for any hope that you have. Anything that's inside of you that you're like, God, I just have this longing. And I'm telling you, your longing isn't enough. It's not big enough because our God is so much greater. Our God is so much bigger and he has the greatest plan for your life. But you have to trust him with every area and you've got to lay it down and say, God, I believe in your grace because your grace is sufficient for me because you gave your son, Jesus, to be my righteousness. And I know I don't feel like a saint today, but God, I know I'm a saint in your eyes because of the son Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, who's covered me with his holiness and his righteousness. And he has a greater dream than you could ever dream of for your life. But will you choose to trust in his grace for you? Will you choose to receive his grace for you? Will you choose tonight to believe that his grace is sufficient for you? If so, I want you to pray this prayer with me. You can pray it in your heart. You can pray it out loud if you want to. Here we go. God, will you place in me the belief that your scandalous grace is more than sufficient for me? And will you give me the desire to trust you in all areas of my life? Heavenly Father, I pray for every student in this room. And I ask, God, by your amazing, wonderful, abundant grace that you continue to lavish every single day, God. I pray that you would come and comfort, that you would come and meet, that you would come and bring peace to every student in this place. And that they would know that you are for them and that you have a plan that's so much greater that would blow their minds today of what you want to do. And just as Saul had no clue what you were going to do with his life, and even in his suffering, he had joy, God, because he was doing what you called him to do. And there is no greater place to be than walking in your call and in your will, God. And I believe for everybody, God, that you have a calling because of the faith that they have in you and your son. And so, God, I pray for students tonight that they would lay down their baggage, they would lay down their past, and they would trust in you and your all-sufficient grace for their lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.